Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Dr. Mike Anestis. He is the executive produ- uh, director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center and an associate professor of urban global public health in the School of Public Health at Rutgers. Uh, he's a clinical psychologist, and, and his area of research focuses mostly on suicides in the military and in civilian life revolving around firearms. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mike Anestis. Thanks for having me. Uh, what got you interested in this level of research? Um, you know, I think a lot of people come to these these kinds of stories with sort of a personal background of sort of lived experience. I, I'm a little different. Um, I, you know, I think I always had an interest in being a psychologist as a as I was growing up and in trying to figure out what interested me most. I guess I just kind of wanted to figure out where I might be able to make a difference in a space where it's sort of a difficult problem to halt to solve and and suicide fit that. And I trained in graduate school. Uh, under the guidance of a guy named Thomas Joyner, who's really sort of one of the preeminent names in suicide research. And he does a lot of military research and sort of got me sort of moving in that direction. So that by the time that I graduated and had my own faculty position in my own lab, um, suicide research in the military just sort of made sense. And, And within that context, I became very interested in the role of firearms, because at the time I was living in South Mississippi, where 70% of all suicides, uh, are, firearm related, which is the same numbers true for service members and veterans. And so the last decade or so, I've just really focused almost exclusively on the role of firearms and suicide and what we can do to help keep folks safe. Yeah, I've had Tom, Dr. Thomas Joyner on the podcast, and the two things he emphasized were our connection to people and purpose. And when those two pillars of our life uh, crumble, uh, that that can you know, lead us in the direction of, uh, you know, putting us more at risk for suicide. And I see you nodding your head. I, I would imagine with the military, um, there would be more things that can lead them to that path. What have you found in your research? Well, you know, I don't know if it's that there are more things that can lead folks down that path, but that there are things that can lead them down that path. And, and you know, for instance, I do a lot of work with the National Guard. And when you think about the life of, of the guardsmen, uh, they're sort of half in one world, half in another. And a lot of times we'd work with folks, you know, immediately post-deployment and they were, you know, leaving combat theater, stopping and Camp Shelby to demob for a little while, and then just going back to their life in a community completely removed from what they had just experienced. And you can imagine how that might impact how connected they feel to folks, how understood they feel by folks um, their sense of a purpose and a mission as they you know, pivot so uh, quickly into such a fundamentally different lifestyle. And and, and the other part of, of Dr. Joyner's theory mentioned the sort of burdensomeness and belonging component. And when those two components kind of fall apart, that makes someone think about suicide. And I think what's unique about the military is the other part of Dr. Joyner's theory, which is that if you feel those things, you're still unlikely to attempt or die by suicide unless you have the capability for suicide. And that's this sort of fearlessness about death and bodily harm and access to and comfort with really highly lethal means. And that's, I think, what sets the military apart is the access to and comfort with highly lethal methods and the fearlessness uh, involved in that. Um, And so that's why my work on firearms, I think, is so relevant because it quite literally weaponizes 
those very sort of human experiences that aren't necessarily unique to the military. There's unique versions of those in the military, but those are those are human experiences, but they become literally weaponized when that community is sort of well prepared to approach something that most of us are pretty frightened of. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I was recently trying to get a Nexus card and I was at the border and the, the border patrol agent was telling me about the high number of suicides uh, that take place amongst uh, border patrol agents. And one of the things she talked about was like the crazy out. I didn't realize like sometimes they work two back to back shifts. And she was like, you don't want to give somebody who's sleep deprived a gun. That's all. Like every every border patrol agent you see is just sleep deprived and and has a gun and and that doesn't make for a very good recipe. Uh, what have you found in terms of sleep? Because I would imagine with the military, you're up at strange hours, you're up for a few hours, you're down. The adrenaline rush, all those things, uh, play a factor. And especially if you haven't learned how to recover, rest, and recoup in between those. Uh, have you found anything? Uh, in your research to that discusses that? So my team hasn't done a whole ton of research on sleep, but a lot of other people have. And, and what they've studied and what they found lines up very much with sort of what you're getting at, which is when you've got sleep disruption and sleep deprivation, um, that has a huge effect on us. It's, it, you know, we don't have a lot of great predictors, quite frankly, of suicide risk and particularly imminent suicide risk, but sudden changes in insomnia and sudden changes in sleep disturbance uh, can be a big one. And there's there's some research also that that nightmares can can impact these things too. But but sleep disruption is a big deal. And, and it's not just that um that's sort of in you know physically taxing experience on its own. It's that sleep deprivation can also impact our mood and our ability to regulate our mood and and how clearly we think and how effectively we problem solve. And so if someone's already coming into that sleep deprivation, you know, depressed and hopeless and disconnected, and then suddenly they're sleep deprived. And so their sort of capacity to regulate what they're feeling and, and come up with solutions isn't there. And that same individual has ready access to a firearm. Yeah, that's a that's a terrible combination. Yeah, earlier you talked about access to guns and, you know, the, the military definitely has a high access to guns as because when you look at um, people in the medical field, they tend to die by suicide through prescriptions, right? Because that's what they mm -hmm. have a higher access to. Uh, so what can we, you know, I want to backtrack a little bit more because you talked about the National Guard and the transition from being in one world and coming to the next how jarring that can be for them. I, I, transitions in general, I find are jarring for people, whether you're going from work to home, home to work, going from uh, college out into the real world, uh, you know, dating to married. Uh, for the border, uh, for the National Guard, what can they do to handle that transition a bit more effectively? What can the National Guard do to help their members navigate that transition? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think there's sort of a couple things that folks can do. So so one of them is, is directly addressing the problem head on, right? So if our theory is that transitions are hard, and when you're transitioning, you feel sort of disconnected from your own identity, from other people, from a sense of mission or purpose, 
then what the guard can do is try and find some way to, to maintain that, you know, have quicker, more regular contact, especially post-deployment, smooth that transition period, find ways to keep uh, the, the military families involved, equip everyone with resources that way. You know, that's hard. That's a heavy lift, right? A lot of people are scattering all over the place. And some of them might say they don't want to be involved, um, but providing opportunity but the other thing I think that we can do, and, and you know, obviously, anytime I'm on any sort of podcast, the, the conversation returns to a, a sort of similar theme throughout. But, but I think another thing the Guard can do, and we're working with them, in fact, to do this very thing uh, across several states right now, is sort of model the social norm of secure firearm storage so that when folks are home, because most military suicides, a vast, vast majority, involve personally owned firearms. It's not the service weapon that's the issue. So promoting the notion of secure firearm storage as the go-to, as the norm, and storing away from home during times of stress, modeling that as not a sign of weakness and not a scarlet letter you put on someone because they're having a hard time, but just a thing we all do. I think by doing that, they can help get through, help guardsmen get through that transition period because their environment will be safer. The reality is if you make the opportunity for suicide less prominent, then suicide will be less common. We still have to solve the problem of their distress and their disconnection. And I'm not disregarding that at all. But in order for us to do that, they have to be alive. And so step one for the guard is to help create a safer environment. And you said step one would be to create a safer environment. And that absolutely makes sense. Because when I think about military movies or any any movie involving guns, the the gun just seems to be there readily available like really do you see someone having to go through a process of unlock finding the gun unlocking it and then you know putting the, the clip in usually the gun is just ready to go and so even in 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 media the way access to a gun is is is, is, is not being modeled like you know it's just like washing hands or locking doors you don't really see that um in mm -hmm. movies and so we kind of have to double down on that um but you said that would be the first step modeling how to secure guns and and teaching them that um it, it doesn't make you uh less of a man or less than a soldier what, what would you say step two is so step two is actually what i was getting i sort of spoke out of order really step two is the stuff i was getting at before which is, look once we secure your environment and i feel confident that you're alive well, now it's beholden upon me to help you be living the life that's worth living, right? The word, the life you're aspiring to. Preventing suicide isn't just about preventing death. It's about building a, a fulfilling life, right? And so that's where it's a matter of trying to limit the disconnect, trying to, and again, there's, there's a lot of demand on people's time. And so I, I can throw out all sorts of pie in the sky ideas that aren't realistic or maybe not even desirable, right? Because you don't want folks to be voluntold that they now can't be in their civilian life after a deployment because maybe they don't want to, right? But creating the opportunity um, and whether it's the guard or also just those communities, right? Like having opportunities for returning service members embedded into a community's framework, whether the guard's setting that up or whether that's the community itself setting up. The idea is finding ways for service members to remain connected to the entirety of who they are and to feel seen as who they are and have an opportunity to be understood, right? Because again, part of being disconnected can be, I don't feel like anybody cares about me, but I think the more common experience is people care about me, but they don't get it. Like they they don't see me. They don't, they haven't seen what I've seen, right? And so you can imagine again, the experience of someone coming back from deployment and now they're living a civilian life and just can't really quite explain or don't even really want to explain because they don't want to talk about it. 
um, how isolating that can feel, right? And so step two involves finding opportunities, creating opportunities for folks not to feel isolated. Um, and I don't necessarily mean that literally physically, but being able to connect and be seen and to then have some sort of sense of purpose, a thing that they are doing um, that feels like they're contributing to the world. You know, I definitely want to drill a down on that a bit more because that is so key. I love that you said that they may have people in their life that care, but don't get it. Like they just don't feel understood or perceived by that person. How for the, for the military service person, how could they explain their experience in a way that would help a civilian understand what they're going through? Because I could also see a civilian uh, or uh, the military service person not really having the words to communicate what their experience is and struggling to connect? Yeah, that's a tough question. And I don't know that I have a great answer for it because you, the, how anybody expresses their perspective, their lived experience differs from person to person, right? And I don't think there's one necessarily effective, universally ideal way to do that. I think that whoever is in the life of that particular service member, the way that that service member communicates their perspective has to be based upon that, right? Is this someone who's going to understand this by sitting down and talking to them? Is this someone who's going to understand that person writes it down and, and tells their story through written word? Um, I don't know. I also think there are probably some situations where you can't totally convey your experience. And that's why it can be helpful to have a community of people you're connected to who do share that experience, right? Not because your family member doesn't want to understand, but because the same way it's difficult, I would imagine, to explain what red looks like to someone who can't see color, right? To some extent, if you haven't shared that same basic experience, accurately and effectively conveying the lens through which you see things is going to be next to impossible and might feel, feel frustrating and invalidating to try. And so certainly I'm open to folks trying that. I don't know that there's a magic recipe, but I think that that should be one thing they do alongside connecting to folks who already have a base level understanding of things. So they also don't have to do quite so much work to be understood. Yeah. You know, and the thing that came to mind as, as you were talking is this is the, the power of uh books and movies and you know maybe even social media to some extent where if you find if you're a military service person and you find another military serviceman who is going through what you've gone through and is explaining it in a way that makes sense to you and you feel like would help you connect with your significant other to share that piece of information because there have been times where there's been an experience that I've had that I've tried to communicate to my girlfriend or to a friend and they, I could tell they don't get it. And mm -hmm. then I, I watch a movie or I read a, something in a book and I go, this is what I was trying to explain to them. And then I share and they go, Oh, that makes sense. So this is where the, I think the arts come in. And I know that there's been a lot of biblio, I think it's bibliotherapy that's come into play with, uh, military service people where uh you know like they read a book together and they dissect uh you know the passage and this is to help them create more empathy but also 
expand their vocabulary. Their, their, because I, I don't know what your experience has been, but I, I would assume that a lot of them have a very limited vocabulary as to their emotional experiences. And so when you're already starting off with a limited emotional vocabulary, it's then hard to communicate that. Has that been, have you found that? I don't know what the data is on that. I don't, you know, and I don't know that I've necessarily encountered that, but I also haven't looked for it. I, I mean, I think if you think about the demographics of the military, right, there's a lot more men. Um, if you've got voluntary service, you're going to have a lot more sensation seeking men, folks who are drawn towards a potentially dangerous service opportunity, right? And so is that group of folks collectively sort of socialized to talk about their emotions? No. Not really, right? And so could it be then that a, the the military overall is sort of skewed towards folks who maybe have spent a little bit less time thinking about and sort of being taught how to experience and express their emotions? Absolutely. I think that's possible. You know, I don't I I'd, I'd be cautious in applying that label just because I haven't I haven't seen it, right? I'm a data guy. Um and so anytime I talk about characterizing a group or talking about an intervention that works, I I want to see the data on it. Um, but I wouldn't discount that as a possibility. When military service people are, are home, say, you know, I really want to stick with the National Guard because I think that's a group of people that's not talked enough about. We always hear about the Marines or the Army. And and I think the National Guard, is, you know, especially if they are on for a few days and off for a few days, it's kind of unlike uh, most of the uh, other uh, military deployments where if you're in the Marines, you might be gone for a year or so. But the National Guard, uh, you know, in some cases are you know, uh, more intermittent than the other, uh, the other branches of the military. Um, when they're home, what, and besides the building, the connectedness and, and the belongingness, uh, what are some ways, how would that look? Meaning it's one thing to say, you know, build a connection, build understanding, um, you know, uh, establish some type of routine, but can we get a bit more specific as to what that would look like for them? Like at what actionable steps or what examples you have of someone who found a way to connect while they're home? You know, and you know, I want to give you a frustrating answer, um, but you know, obviously it's going to depend on the individual and who they are, but here's a couple of sort of a little bit more concrete things than that. So one of the things I've come across and, in my experience with the Guard, is that a good number of folks in the Guard, their their sort of job and identity in the Guard is fundamentally different than the job and identity they have in their civilian life. You know, someone who's a, a dentist as a civilian might do something unrelated to that field uh, while they're sort of active with the Guard. Um, and if they do end up in a long deployment, a year deployment, um, that's a big shakeup, right? And so one concrete thing folks could do is find some sort of, it could be volunteer activity or what, but some way to do something that is in some way more directly connected to the life they had on the other side of things. So instead of completely pivoting, and now they're this person instead of that person, there's elements of both in, in both places, right? I think that you can um, diminish the impact of a pivot if the pivot isn't completely devoid of of any remnant of what was there before. So 
again, and in terms of what can people do specifically, it really depends. I don't know what their job is. I don't know how much time they have. I don't know their family situation. It's easy for me to say, hey, well, you should volunteer a couple times a week at a place where you'll you'll be with other service members and you're doing something for the community. So there's a sense of mission. But if you're working long hours and you've got young children and you've been away from your partner for a year, suddenly, you know, volunteering multiple hours, multiple days a week, that's a big, heavy ask, right? And so it really is a matter of you don't want the solution to be just another problem. And so I, I think that people have to be mindful of what reserves do they have? What time do they have? What energy do they have that they can apply? And so one of my favorite treatments, data-driven treatments for depression is what's called behavioral activation. And what you do is you mark down what are your <clears throat> what are your values across a number of domains in life, work, education, fun, relationships, what are your values? And the idea behind behavioral activation is that when you're starting to feel depressed, you feel less motivated to do things. So you don't do as much. And then you feel more depressed because you're not doing the things you, you usually like, which makes you less motivated to do them. And around and around it goes. And whereas most of us wait to do something until we're motivated to do it, behavioral activation says do it to create the motivation. And so you take these different domains and your values and you schedule specific behaviors, activities that are consistent with these different values. And they help you feel better in those moments. They help you develop the motivation to do more of it at a time. And so in terms of specific actions, I would encourage service members to write down, what are my values? Who am I as a person? What are my values across different domains of life? And what are some steps, some big, some really small that I can take each day towards some of those values so that I feel like I'm living the life I'm supposed to live? Um, and that's going to look different for each person, which is good, right? I'm not giving someone a checklist of say, do this generic stuff. I'm saying, who are you and who do you want to be? And what are some specific things? And it's really important to take bite-sized pieces. If someone is uh, has an exercise in a year and doesn't own a bicycle, step one isn't bike 10 miles a day. It's go online and do some research on the cost of bicycles. And then maybe next week it's go to the, sh the shop and look at bikes. But it's specific steps you take towards getting to a goal that you want, right? And so that's what I would encourage about specific responses is look at your life and your circumstances. Look at who you are and what you value and make sure you are scheduling time each day to do some of these things and know that that's not a luxury. That's not an indulgence. That's part of living a healthy life. I love that, that bite taking bite-sized pieces to mental health. Speaking of which, you know, I was on the beach uh, recently and I ran into a, a former uh, Marine or a Marine, uh, but he's no longer active duty. And he was saying how important it was for him to one, get therapy and two to, he, he was like, I come to the beach every night to help myself calm down. And so we started talking about therapy because I hear so many stories about military service people who want to go see a therapist, want to go see a psychologist, but they're afraid of how it's going to look on their record. What have you found have been the, the barriers to service people going to get mental health while being in the military? Yeah, so I think it's two. One of them you you hit straight straight on, which is the fear of sort of professional consequences. So go my record, it could impact promotion, it could get me separated from a unit for my service weapon. Um, and the other is is what folks will talk about is the warrior culture, um, which in the context of 
the service makes a lot of sense. It involves a lot of autonomy and solving your own problems and having a lot of grit, right? Um, but in the context of dealing with mental health, trouble isn't so great because that creates a culture that says, you know, seeking treatment for mental health is a sign of weakness. It's a sign that you're not fit for duty, that your readiness isn't there. Um, and that's, you know, we, I talked before about knowing your values. Well, that's going to go in direct contrast to some pretty deeply held values, right? And so you've got both logistical and cultural barriers to getting help at times. And you can see that in one of the first studies I did as uh, a faculty member I had a grant from the DOD. And I was doing some surveys with folks, uh, a bunch of whom were actively demobbing from Afghanistan at the time. And I told them early on, look, I've got this big survey you're going to take. And early on, right after the sort of demographics about your age and uh, you know gender and, and education, there's some questions about suicidal thoughts. And, and if you know, I've got a pretty high threshold, but if you're above our threshold, I'm obligated by the DOD to tell somebody on site that you're at, you know, pretty severe risk. Um, but, you know, it's a big survey. Later on in the survey, you might see some similar questions. Well, those aren't part of my safety protocol. I don't report anything about that. And what we found is that folks were 60% more likely to report suicidal thoughts on those later questions that weren't reportable than on the early ones, right? So if you've got a system that's pretty actively telling folks, um, you know, this is going to get is going to trigger some big alarm response. Uh, you're just going to get people not to tell you. Yeah, because I know people who are even afraid to call the 988 suicide prevention because they're afraid that the police are going to like kick in their door and or some institution is going to like throw a straitjacket on them and and, and wheel them off. Uh, yeah. and, and so we just we still have this fear, you know, perpetuated by the media and and other sources of what happens when you do reach out for help. Um, and so with this research, uh, you know, looking at firearms in the military and firearms in, in civilian population, are there any glaring differences that you found between the military and the civilian use of firearms and suicide? So the biggest difference is sort of the most obvious one, which is just the frequency. So if you look at the population overall in the United States, about 50 to 55% of the suicide deaths in any given year are from self-inflicted gunshot wounds. But if you look at service member or veteran populations, that number is up closer to 70%. And a lot of that is just because the military is populated by folks who are more likely to own firearms and have more experience with it. And like you said earlier, you know, medical professionals tend to die using overdose. Um, anesthesiologists in particular will use barbiturates. Uh, veterinarians will use phenobarbital. These are things they're accustomed to using that they have familiarity with. So when they think about what a suicide look like, they they use that. Well, service members are, are trained and often have access to firearms. And so you see that higher percentage. And what's sort of scary about that is a couple of studies we published recently, and, and, and a buddy of mine, Craig Bryan, has published some related work too, some with us and some not. We found a couple of things. One is, is good news. Um, service members who are experiencing suicidal thoughts are less likely to have a firearm at home than suicidal or than uh, uh, non-suicidal service members. So that's good. But when a suicidal service member has a firearm at home, they're more likely to store that firearm unlocked. And loaded. So that's that's very bad. That's ready access, like you were talking about early on. And then we published something just a couple of weeks ago, building off of that, that's sort of even worse and lines up with what you and I were just talking about, which is if you take a, a group of folks, 
service members, all of whom who said they've had suicidal thoughts in the past year or the past month, all of whom own firearms. The folks who tell me that they have not told anyone else about their suicidal thoughts, they're more likely to store their firearms unsecured. And the folks who say, I have not attended any behavioral health care sessions in the last three months, they're the ones more likely to store their firearms unsecured. So the people that we're not identifying as risk, the people uh, who are suffering in silence, um, certainly not connecting with our healthcare system and being identified as folks at, at imminent risk, they're the ones who have the most ready access to a firearm. Does that apply to civilians? I'm not sure. That's a that's a thing to test in an, in another study because this was a military study. So I can't say that's unique to the military, and I can't say that it's not unique to the military. But I can say it's an important finding that that really speaks to the need to make sure that when we're trying to solve the problem of military suicide, sure, we want to spend some time helping the folks who say, "Hey, I'm having a hard time," but we also need to help the folks who aren't saying that. We need to find ways to go upstream, and and again, make environments safer so that someone's at risk and I don't know about it, they're still less likely to die. And, and so two things jump out at me. One is identifying those who aren't saying anything. Because I, I would assume that even if they aren't saying it explicitly, they are communicating in one way or the other that it's something that is that they're considering. Like there's some subconscious, uh, you know, like black and white thinking or or changing a sudden change in behavior or something like that. Have you found that? I'm I'm just making assumptions here. You know, I'm not sure that they are. To be honest with you, I I, I mean, no doubt, someone someone who's suffering to the point where they're suicidal and not telling anyone about it. There's no doubt that they've got some thought processes, whether it's black and white thinking or something else going on that that's a sign that they're struggling. But the vast majority of folks who have those signs aren't going to attempt suicide, never mind die. And so on the one hand, we can think, well, what can we do to identify the hidden signs? And some people are using things like machine learning to try to do that. I'm less convinced that's the way to go. And I heard a guy talk a few months ago, and it really stuck with me. And he, he was talking about something different, but he was still talking about the idea of going upstream. And what he said is, look, you can look for the needle in the haystack. And if you find that needle, that's great. You'll help that needle. But you also just help the needle and the haystack. And then even if you don't find the needle, you're going to help that needle. There's nothing wrong with helping the hay. Um, and so I, I don't know if that needle is sending off some signal that would help me find it and then direct care to that needle. But I know that if I do something that helps needle and hay alike be safer, that it's okay that I didn't find them and that they'll be alive long enough that hopefully they do start vocalizing their struggle and then we're able to identify and help them. That absolutely makes sense. It's almost like I don't have to identify the student in in the in the school that might be suicidal, but if I, I know that if I incorporate some mental health programs and ways for the teachers to build more of a connection and rapport with the students, then that could create a buffer or at least bias time uh, yes. to to get some help to the student. I I, I love that whole. You used the term upstream a lot. What, what what's the basis of that? Sure. So the idea, you know, and I'm going to butcher it if I try to come up with sort of historically where that phrase came from. But most psychologists like me are trained to think, OK, somebody says, hey, I'm having a hard time. And at that point, we say this person's having a hard time. We direct them the care. And so our job is to help the people having a hard time. And going upstream means don't wait to find out 
go further before, get ahead of the problem. That problem might not even have emerged yet. So in the sense that you might be providing a tool to someone who five years from now is going to be having a hard time. They're not yet. And so the idea is going further ahead of the problem. Um, it's less reactionary and more proactive. It's saying, what are things I can do at the population level without having to know if risk is there yet or if risk is ever coming? What can I do that applies to everybody so that as risk emerges or the risk is already there and being experienced, but I don't know about it, that individual who's sort of hidden to me is able to engage with care. The whole idea is there's a lot of people out there I don't think are ever going to want to engage with the healthcare system, no matter what we do. And that's unfortunate, but rather than just wish it to be different, and I certainly wish it to be different, I think, well, what can I do to help these folks where they are? How can I meet them where they're at and provide a solution that's palatable and effective so that they don't have to do things they don't want to do and they don't have to be someone different than they want to be. They can still get the same outcome. Oh, I like that. They don't have to be something different than, than they don't want to be. Because I, I, I'm imagining that there are times in the military where you may have to do something that is maybe against your own personal value. And then you have to come home and face your community of, of people who have established values or, or whatever. And, you, and, and now you uh, have to wrestle with that and, and feel like they're not going to accept you. And now you don't feel like you're a part of you know, the military to some degree, because you've done a thing that didn't align with your values. And that kind of leaves you in a, in a purgatory. Um, is this where, you know, talking to a psychologist or talking to somebody else comes in like a, a third party? Or what would you say to that person who who feels like they might be in that space? Yeah. And, and what you're describing, there's a lot of research on this idea. And I mentioned Craig Bryan, a friend of mine earlier, he's a veteran himself. He's He's done a lot of work on this, this idea of what's called moral injury. It's not a physical injury. It's a moral injury. This idea of you had you saw things or you did things or you knew other people who did things that just violate your values and who you are. And, and that is essentially almost like a, a, a form of trauma, right? And it sticks with you and it's hard and it creates feelings of guilt and conflict and doubt. And, and like you said, you, you might not want to communicate with people about it. And so yeah, look, I, I am a licensed clinical psychologist. I am very much an advocate for folks getting evidence-based uh, mental health care. And so, yeah, I think it's a great idea for folks to do that um, and do that on a civilian side of things, if that's what you want to do to keep things out of that system, right? Uh, I 100% advocate for folks getting mental health care. Um, sometimes connecting with the people you know best isn't an option for solving certain problems. Um, and again, we could wish that to be different, Um or we can play the, the sort of the hand we're dealt. When we're looking at women in the military, are we finding the same? I would imagine women are also ending their lives with the firearms in the military also. Is it at the same rate or is there something else that's coming into play there? So it's not the same rate as men, but it's far higher than the rate of civilian women. So just like, you know, certain men within the military die by firearm suicide at a higher rate than their civilian counterparts. Women in the military die by firearm suicide at a higher rate than their female civilian counterparts. But women die by firearm suicide less often than men, whether they're civilians or service members or veterans. Um, and again, most of that comes down to access. Men are far more likely to 
own firearms and have ready access to firearms. And so a firearm isn't more deadly for a man than it is for a woman. Firearms are just more deadly for folks who have access and comfort and familiarity with them. And more often than not, that's men. Wow. And and are we finding that, you know, the reasons are the are the same? Are they struggling? I mean, I'm sure they're struggling with a lot of the same things. There's a lot of overlap, but are there some outliers? That's a good question. And, you know, I don't know that I can give you a definitive answer. Uh, I, I think the idea is if you think about things through the same lens that someone like Dr. Joyner does and, and folks like David Duklonsky and other sort of folks who really shape the way I think about what it is that makes somebody feel suicidal, everybody has their own reasons and their own paths. There isn't one set pattern that explains it, but those unique experiences often fall under some pretty broad universal categories, whether you're male or female, black or white, military, civilian, uh, older, younger, rural, urban, these ideas of connection, of purpose, belongingness, burdensomeness, all, all those variables, I think, can capture so many different unique things. And in some ways, that makes those labels like burdensome and belongingness less useful, right? Because it can mean almost anything. That's true. Um, but it also gives us a way to think in a simpler way, rather than listing 8 million individual paths someone could take, you can summarize it as lots of folks in different ways are experiencing things that make them feel less useful to the world. In fact, like they're costing the world by continuing to exist and make them feel less connected to other people, either because nobody cares about them or people don't see them for who they are. And that's a great place to to dig a little deeper in terms of how do we reframe that? Because, you know, you can have someone who comes home from the military, they're married, have kids, and uh, and now, but they have a struggle with nightmares, right? PTSD, um, and, and to the point, maybe they're having like violent nightmares. And so they have to sleep on a couch and sleep away. And, um, and that person might then end their life. And but then you have somebody who comes home and they've lost both legs in the military and somehow and they're married with kids and somehow finds purpose uh, in that and is able to, you know, move forward and continue to build and thrive. What are the what are the, some of the mechanisms there uh, mentally in terms of reframing your because I because I think that. Going back to the black and white thinking and the concrete thinking is when we find our purpose, we we get so inflexible with finding another purpose. It's like, this is my purpose. This is my thing for life. And if we're not prepared to be flexible and change it, it can catch us off guard and kind of ruin the, the rest of the life that we do have. Yeah, you know, I think the simplest, most reflects, reflexive answer to that would be like, well, some people are more resilient than others. And I don't think that's the way to go, right? I don't think it's a matter of strength or weakness or resilience or, or not. I think that different people are impacted by different things differently. The same way, you know, two people might be morally equivalent. One isn't more moral than the other, but one experiences a greater level of moral injury when they have to do something. Uh, during deployment than the other one does. It just hits them harder. Uh, it lingers. It stings differently. Um, and I think that's just acknowledging that everybody's different and everybody 
the way you experience and respond to your experiences in life is it, sort of flavored by the experiences you had by before and by um, the reactions you've had by your support system in the past and by your own sort of personality profile and, and what that says about you know the type of thinking you do and your emotional responses to those and and the the level of 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 tools you have to regulate your emotions when you have them and and so again I, I think sometimes folks like myself give frustrating long-winded answers when what you want is something that's just like look this is it but I don't think there is something that is it I think that two folks can have very different experiences they come home from and you might look at one as way harsher than the other and yet the one who was you think was less harsh is having a harder time. And the reality is people, again, they just respond differently. And, and a, a good example of this, man, is there's there's research on um, what makes someone consider themselves a suicide loss survivor. Um, and and there's a, a, a great professor named Julie Cyril who has published on this idea that it's not six, that the common theory used to be that for every person who dies by suicide, there's, there's six people who say, identify as, man, I lost someone to suicide when that person died. And, and Julie's research says, no, it's actually like more like 145. And what's interesting about it is, is there's the obvious folks, the family members, the, the, the best friends, but also you have like the coworker who didn't talk to that person that much. And, and I can relate to that because there was a, a person who died by suicide in uh, my department uh, at the university I, I worked at before, and I didn't know him very well. And yet it really sort of haunted me, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, man, should I have known something? Should I have offered something? Um, but I didn't really know the guy and it really stuck with me. Um, and so I think the idea is you never know who's going to be hit by what. Um, and it isn't a measure of someone's strength or resilience. It's just a measure of the interaction between who that person is, the life they've lived and whatever just happened. Um, and it's just a matter of, figuring out, well, given who this person is, then what do we need to do to make them feel better about the situation and be able to live with it in a way that that's less likely to have some catastrophic outcome? What was that number you said of people who are affected? I want to say it's over 140. I, I can tell you she uses the hashtag not six. So I can confidently say it's a lot bigger than six. Um, but I want to say it's 140 something. Yeah, I, I read. I don't know if I read that one, but I, I remember reading something recently uh, in that regards because she was talking about uh, not only is it the people that you know, it's also the first responders who find you. Mm -hmm. And it's the therapist who and then it's the, you know, the media who has to report on it and then the public who ends up reading about it. So all these, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, there there was a um, a. a, a pseudo celebrity who just ended his life and i didn't know that person but it it deeply i had to talk to my therapist i spent like two sessions talking about it because their story and their likeness was too close to mine like he looked like he, he, he like his life mirrored mine and i was like whoa like this is this is terrifying so i think when you have somebody who has uh, a similar lifestyle to you or looks like you or, you know, all these different things that, but what I also thought was beautiful is if that's the case, if we end our life, then I would imagine the reverse also is true to some extent of if I'm helping one person, I'm not just helping one person. I am in some ways 
helping uh, over 140 people because that that is going to allow that person to help somebody and somebody saw me help that person so they're going to do something and it's that chain reaction of help and healing that we don't often see or get the feedback from yeah that's a great point you, you don't you don't see the wounds that never happened because you prevented them from coming but that doesn't make them any less real is there anything from your research that we haven't discussed that you think would be important uh, for anybody listening in who's in the military or even married to somebody or or date in a relationship with someone who's in the military? Like, what would you offer to them in terms of holding space and supporting uh, anybody who's coming home, either you know permanently or in transition? Yeah. So yeah, I think sort of two things. One is I would reiterate, you know, all the things that we've talked about, about making someone find a space to feel connected to themselves and a purpose and, and to sort of manage those factors that make someone feel distressed or unseen. Um, but my research, again, is very much about the environment. And, and you and I have talked a lot about <clears throat> the dangers of firearms and, and, and not as much about the solutions that we have to help keep people safe without sort of threatening their rights and, and their identity and 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 sort of being invasive into private affairs. Um, and, and so I think that it's important for the service member him or herself or their family members to understand the idea of secure firearm storage in the home and legal storage outside of the home during times of stress. And so the reality is when there's a firearm in the home, the risk for death by suicide for everybody in that home, not just the firearm owner, goes up three to five times and much higher, actually, if the firearm is stored unsecurely, whether that's loaded, unlocked, and so forth. Um, and so we need to find ways to lower that environmental risk. Um, because when somebody attempts suicide using a firearm, the case fatality rate, the likelihood that someone's going to die is 85 to 95%. If you take the likelihood of all other attempt methods combined, it's less than 5%. And what's tragic about that is that 70% of folks who survive a suicide attempt never attempt again. So second chances matter a ton, and folks who use a firearm never, almost never get a second chance. So we have to create an environment where it's unlikely that someone in a crisis is going to reach for their firearm. And so step one is just as the normal behavior, store the firearm unloaded and locked up. And there's all sorts of different locking devices that exist that fit different um, types of firearms and that give you different speed of access. If someone has a firearm they own for home protection and they're just not comfortable with having a keyed lock because they feel like it's going to take too long or they're going to lose the key in emergency, there's biometric locks that are keyed to your fingerprint. And then if you're having a hard time, you can change it to your partner's fingerprints. You can't access it until you're feeling better. But the other thing that the service member or their family member can do on this front is be aware of local legal options to store the firearm away from home during times of stress for anyone in that house. Um, and think of it as like letting someone hold your car keys when you've had too much to drink and then you get them back, right? So this isn't about someone coming in and taking them away. This isn't, a, again, about putting some scarlet letter on someone and saying, well, they can't have firearms. It's the service member, him or herself deciding, I'm going to go to the local firearm retailer or law enforcement agency, or if you live in a state that's more permissive about temporary transfers, I'm going to go to my buddy down the road and let them hold my, my firearm. Or if you don't want to lose complete control of the firearm, let them hold the firing pin for a while, disassemble the weapon. Um, there are all sorts of different idiosyncratic ways to have a plan. And I guess the other parallel I give to this man is um, a lot of families have plans for what would you do 
and the house catches fire. Where do we meet? Where do you go? Step one, two, three. How do we make sure we all get out safe? Um, you don't make that plan when the house catches fire. You make it beforehand. So make your family's plan. But instead of a fire, it's it's mental health difficulty. Someone's having a hard time. Well, what do we do? What are the steps we take to make sure our environment's safer until that crisis goes down? And then we just go back to normal. But we do it on our terms. I love that idea of having a mental health plan and, and, and tying it into, you know, like the fire drill, et cetera, et cetera. And what do we need to get out the house? I, I know for myself, like I have to change uh, my diet. I have to make sure I go to bed at a at a at a decent hour and, and hydrate and get some sun. And I definitely have a checklist that I go through. Uh, I, I recently just like uh, outsourced my social media because I recognize what a huge trigger social media is for me. So I have somebody else just handling that, so I don't have to see these. Uh, it's a great idea. Triggering images uh, that that pop. I mean, Facebook just. And Twitter just they just know what to show you at the wrong time. Um, yep. or I mean actually there's no there's no real right time to be shown any most of the stuff that they're anyway. But uh is there anything else that we haven't covered, uh, Dr. Anestis, uh, from your research or from your experiences that you're like or that you know that surprised you, or you just like, whoa, if more people knew about this or or this or you know, the way maybe even an anecdote from how someone you know dealt with their mental health that you wouldn't have thought of some creative uh mode well you an anecdote i can give you that has always stuck with me and i think is compelling is that we we did a project a, a few colleagues and i called project safeguard and this was a big randomized trial of an intervention called lethal means counseling which is really at its core is just sort of a one-on-one -on -one conversation about how folks store their firearms sort of now or in difficult times. And we were working with the Mississippi National Guard for this project. And, and some of the folks were you know, having a hard time, suicidal. Some of the folks were perfectly fine, right? So we're talking about something that may or may not ever be relevant to them. And we had a guy who came in and for his first appointment, he was randomized to get the intervention. And, and we used an approach called motivational interviewing. That doesn't let the clinician be the expert. You don't tell someone what they have to do. You definitely don't argue. You just want to meet people where they're at and maybe they're motivated to change. Maybe they're not. And your job's to try and help them sort of leverage their intrinsic motivation. And, and, and so this guy came in and he did not have intrinsic motivation for change. He said, look, it's a bunch of, bunch of BS. I, I don't, none of this makes sense to me. I'm not going to do it. And the clinician very skillfully just kind of rolled with that and said, look, I appreciate your honesty. And it's, it's helpful to see the world through your lens. And, and, uh, you know, we're certainly not here to tell you what you have to do. And um, we weren't sure we'd see him again. And, you know, there's three month and six month follow appointments and his three month appointment came and he showed up and he said, look, at, at baseline, I, I told you I wasn't going to do this. And uh, I didn't because it's it just doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't think any of this makes sense. This is a waste of time. And again, the clinician very skillfully said, look, I appreciate your honesty and coming back. We don't want people to just tell us what we want to hear. We want to know what's happening, what's not happening. And so we can sort of faithfully report reality and adjust. Um, and then he came back for a six-month appointment. And when he was in the room with the clinician, he said, look, I, I thought about the conversation we had. And, and since we last talked, I broke up with my fiance and, and I thought about everything we'd said. And I let my brother hold my firearms. And this guy owns seven firearms. He's like, I'm pretty sure I'd be dead if I hadn't done that. Um, and so the idea is this is this can be a difficult conversation. But it doesn't need to be. It definitely doesn't need to be. In fact, shouldn't be an argument. It's about planting seeds, not picking flowers. If you're talking to someone upstream, like we were talking about before they're at risk, 
they're not going to see a reason to do any of this. So don't force it. Don't force the issue. Just have a conversation that meets them where they're at. And then if it becomes relevant down the road, the hope is that they can reflect on that conversation and react to it differently than they otherwise would have. Um, and so again, it isn't about trying to force someone to be different than who they are or to see the world through your lens. It's about seeing the world through their lens. And within the context of that, what's a way that everyone can agree would be a good way to be safe? Beautiful. And and a question that just popped in my mind, and I don't even know if there's an answer to this or if the question even makes sense, but w- what's one thing that if the military did would put you out of business in terms of the research you're doing right now? Man, I'd love to be put out of business. Look, the single greatest thing we can do, and there isn't a close second to reduce the suicide rate nationally, whether you're talking military or not, is to decrease ready access to firearms amongst people who are feeling suicidal. Because we don't, we often don't know who those folks are. What that means is how can we instill a complete cultural shift that makes the notion of storing a firearm securely just obvious, the same way people buckle their seatbelts, the same way nowadays we're far more likely to have a designated driver than we were in the early 80s, the same way we've made all sorts of other simple behavior changes. I talk a lot about, I used to sneeze in my hand when I was uh, a kid because people told me to do that, but now I sneeze into my elbow because people have made me realize it's kind of dumb to you know, expel germs on your hand and rub it all over the world. That's not really protecting anyone from anything, um, right? There are small little changes you can do that can have really big downstream effects. And if the military can instill that culture across the branches, the reality is the military is also a really credible messenger on this. So not only could they put me out of business through the work they did within the military space, that effect could extend well beyond the military and help nationally on the idea of storing firearms securely, reducing access in times of stress so that someone who's feeling suicidal is highly unlikely to end up with a firearm in their hand. Um, if they do that, I'll go out of business gladly. Well, I, I love everything that you've shared. I love you for taking this uh, this time with us. Um, and, you know, for the listeners out there, it's, you know, secure it in a, in a safe space uh, at home if you have it. And then also have a plan B for those acute situations where you, you feel a bit untethered and uh, and have a plan for that also. And and. You know, the thing I always like to highlight is ask for help before you even need it or think you need it, because, you know, when you're in that in the depth of despair, um, you're not thinking you're just you're going to you're going to go on autopilot. You're going to do what you've always done. And that's that's where the trouble is. So even if you don't think you need help, just get help to see what it feels like. And then, you know, you have that when uh, when when life hits the fan, because life is going to hit the fan is because it's life. Uh, Dr. Anestis, last question I have and I ask this of all my guests. Well, first of all, where can people find you and reach out to you? Yeah, sure. So you can find me on uh, the website for the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center at gunviolenceresearchcenter.rutgers.edu. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at psychbrownbag. Um, and you can just find me by email at mda141 at sph.ruckers.edu. Uh, and then last question I asked this of all my guests. I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? I'd say when you're in that moment, it feels like a hard truth 
that that's the right way to go and that it would actually benefit. But I've never in my 20 years of working on this topic heard a single story where someone who died by suicide uh, left people glad that it happened. People care. People don't want this outcome. It just feels like that's not the case. Um, this never ends up actually being a solution that helps anyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Anestis. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call the 988 or any of the other 1-800-International uh, Suicide Prevention phone numbers that are listed. There are numbers that are for the vets. Uh, there are numbers for domestic violence. And there's also financial uh, help resources in the show notes. So if you need help, call. But you can chat. You can talk. You can you can text. It's just there's somebody that you can reach out to. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Anestis. Thank you.